We praise you. And it really is easy to get our focus on ourselves and our daily stuff and, and uh, you know, really forget about you sometimes, so forgive us. But thank you for being such a gracious Father who just loves us and is waiting for us to turn back to you. And so this morning, we're just looking to you. We long for you to shine your face upon us, that we'd experience your presence and... Uh, and see you, you are good. You really do make a difference in our lives, and thank you. So teach us now from your word about faith, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Look at Hebrews chapter 11, we're going to look at verses 23 through 27, that's page 656 in the Bibles that we give away. If you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand and someone will bring you one, it's our gift to you. We're going through the book of Hebrews verse by verse. And looking at chapter 11, especially right now, all of these incredible examples of faith. And I really hope that as we're learning about faith, it's stirring your faith and you're trusting more and more in God and seeing him more and experiencing his presence more because that's what really makes a difference in our lives. So so uh, I hope that's working out here. We're looking at Moses today, the faith of Moses and how faith sees God. Now, the uh, story goes that there was this little kid, uh, she was drawing, and her mom comes up to her and says, oh, what are you drawing? And she says, well, I'm drawing God. And, and mom says, well, you know, no one has ever seen God. Well, they will when I'm finished. <laughs> and uh, now, now that's going to come up a little later in the message, Okay. But back to Moses. Moses was an example of faith because in some sense he saw God. But what does that mean and what are the results of seeing God? Look at our passage in Hebrews eleven twenty three. By faith, Moses, after he was born, was hidden by his parents for three months because they saw that the child was beautiful and they didn't fear the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter and chose to suffer with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasure of sin. For he considered reproach for the sake of Christ to be greater wealth than the treasure of Egypt since he was looking ahead to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt behind, not being afraid of the king's anger, For Moses persevered as one who sees him who is invisible. Uh, F.F. Bruce kind of summarizes this in his commentary. He says, the next example of faith is Moses, whose whole life is marked by awareness of the presence and power of the unseen God and believing obedience to his word. Because Moses saw God, he was able to put pleasure and comfort and security aside because he believed God's way would ultimately bring the most pleasure, comfort, and security. Now, I want to look at this passage, but I want to start from the end, okay? So we're going to look at verse 27b, because I think that's how the, the passage culminates, where 
Moses persevered as one who sees him who is invisible. Okay, so what does it mean when it says Moses saw the invisible God? I mean, because that almost sounds like an oxymoron, right? Okay, so what does that mean? And that's what we want to look at. Okay, there are other passages in the scriptures that bring out this concept, this idea. So, in fact, look at 1 Timothy 6, verses 15 and 16. Here, these and these passages, they really show the incredible greatness and awesomeness of our God. Look at 1 Timothy 6, 15. It says, God will bring about this about in his own time. He is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal power. Amen. Now here we're seeing God glorified, and it speaks of how he is lives in unapproachable light. That means we can't approach it, right? Unapproachable light, and that no one has seen or can see God. So no one has ever seen him, and no one can see him. And yet our passage says, Moses saw him. So that's what we're looking at, first of all. What does it mean when it says, Moses saw the invisible God? Um, uh, Two things is what it means, okay? First of all, when it says, Moses saw the invisible God, it means that God is invisible, right? Right? Okay, so that's the first thing it means. God is invisible because God is incorporeal. You know what that means? Doesn't have a body, okay? He is spirit. He is everywhere all at once and beyond. So he doesn't, he's not limited to a physical body. You know, and some people will say, well, what is, I thought the Bible talks about the eyes of the Lord or the hand of the Lord. I'm sitting at the right hand where God's foot, uh, the earth is God's footstool. So like his foot somewhere, maybe on Toledo, Ohio or something. It's just sitting there, you know. You know, those are what we call anthropomorphisms. There's a great word, okay. And all that means is it's using human language to sort of explain the eternal, infinite God, okay? So we're not supposed to think he actually has eyeballs or a right hand or a foot on Toledo, okay? What he's, what it's showing is here's just a little bit of, from our perspective, what God is like. And so, so uh, but he's, ultimately he is invisible, incorporeal. This is the great truth of monotheism, that he is one God. There's only one God. We see this in John 1, verse 18. Look at the Gospel of John. Here, an incredible truth in the the Gospel of John, by far the most theological of all the Gospels, really portrays uh, Jesus and God in incredible light. But look what it says here in John 1, 18. No one has ever seen God. Okay, we've already seen that, right? 
okay? No one has ever seen God. The one and only Son, who is himself God and is at the Father's side, he has revealed him, okay? So here's a little glimpse of perhaps what he's referring to here. No one has ever seen God, the Father, or God in all of his glory, but God the Son has revealed him. So keep that in mind because we're going to look at how, in what sense, perhaps, did Moses see God. But we see this, uh, we, we must be convinced of this first truth, though, that God is invisible. And that's why the command, no idolatry. God is absolutely opposed to all forms of idolatry. He tells us in the second commandment, do not ever make any image of God. So the little girl probably shouldn't have been drawing that picture. Okay, But do not make any image of God. He makes it crystal clear. Anything we make of God would not exalt him. It would diminish his glory because it's not what God is like. And so he says, do not do that. In fact, the the Jewish people in the ancient Near East, as well as the early church Christians, both were accused of atheism by the surrounding cultures. They were accused of atheism because they said they have no images. There's no images, no statues, nothing. So that was unique about them because they obeyed the book. It wasn't until later that they, the church started doing that, and it's not supposed to, okay? Because God, in his infinite glory, we can't make a representation of him, and he tells us not to. God is invisible. So what does it mean when it says Moses saw the invisible God? First, it means God is invisible, and second, it means Moses saw God, okay? Right? That's the two things of the passage says, isn't it? But how did he see God? And, and I think there's three ways in which we can understand this, and I think they're all three correct in different passages of Scripture that refer to either Moses or someone else when they see God. So, And the first one, basically, uh, to perceive the truth of God. I, it's kind of like when we say, I see what you were saying, okay? So I perceive the truth, but perhaps a little more than that, I perceive your presence, and your truth, okay? So that's one way. A second way, and we see this throughout the Old Testament, is what's called theophanies. A theophany is where God will manifest himself in a physical form temporarily. So for a temporary period of time, he manifests himself in a physical form. We'll see one of them here in just a moment when God revealed himself in the burning bush to Moses. Other places we see this idea of God showing up in a temporary way, and they call these theophanies, okay? In fact, let's look at the burning bush. Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. It's the second book, so Genesis, Exodus, so the second book in the Bible. Exodus chapter 3. Chapter 3 is the third chapter. You got one, two, and three. All right. I I try to be helpful. Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. 
He says, meanwhile, Moses was shepherding the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire within a bush. Now, this is interesting. This phrase, the angel of the Lord, uh, typically, perhaps in your your versions, you might have it capitalized at times because this phrase is used in the Old Testament to refer to more than an angel. He's actually not speaking about an angel here because as we'll see as we move on. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire within a bush. As Moses looked, he saw that the bush was on fire but was not consumed. So Moses thought, I must go over and look at this remarkable sight. Why isn't the bush burning up? When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called out to him from the bush, Moses, Moses, here I am, he answered. Do not come closer, he said. Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he continued, I am the God of your father and the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. So here he's clearly having an encounter with God, and he's seeing a physical manifestation in the burning bush. Okay, this is a theophany. Notice, at first it was called the angel of the Lord, but then it was called Yahweh himself, right? So the angel of the Lord is these theophanies where God appears for a period of time. And once again, we see these all the way through. As you're reading through the Bible, you're going to see these come up over and over. You've already seen it two or three times in Genesis, okay? So we'll, uh, we'll see more of these. But now here's the question as we look at this. Moses saw God somehow, but who did he see? Remember John 1.18? When in doubt, the answer is Jesus. Yes, okay. Jesus. That's, most scholars believe that's what we're seeing. The second person of the Trinity is the one who takes on these physical forms from time to time. Now, we know that in the virgin birth, he, that's the incarnation where he took on a second nature, that of humanity, where he permanently became a human being and continued to be God. So he has, now has two natures. He's both God and man. But these theophanies, or you might even want to call them Christophanies, this is temporary manifestations with the ultimate where Jesus becomes a human uh, and reveals God perfectly. Colossians 1.15 says that Jesus is the image of, of the invisible God. And so, theophanies, and we see this clearly with Moses, but also there's some other passages that talk about Moses seeing God. And another way in which Moses saw God and the people of God saw God is to see God's glory. Okay? Look at Exodus 33, verses 11 through 20. This is a, another passage that uh, brings out how Moses saw God, Exodus 33 and verse 11. 
It says, the Lord would speak with Moses face to face just as a man speaks with his friend. Now, that's kind of interesting. Hold on to this thought here, okay? He speaks to Moses face to face, and he's trying to draw out how Moses' relationship with God was unique, okay? But notice he says face to face. That kind of sounds like he saw God's face, right? But let's read on. Then Moses would return to the camp. His assistant, the young man Joshua, son of Nun, would not leave the inside of the tent. Moses said to the Lord, Look, you have told me, lead this people up, but you've not let me know whom you will send with me. You said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor with me. Now if I have indeed found favor with you, please teach me your ways, and I will know you so that I may find favor with you. Now, Consider that this nation is your people. Notice he's seeking God with all of his heart. Okay. And God replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. I love that. My presence will go with you. If your presence does not go, Moses responded to him, don't make us go up from here. How will it be known that I and your people have found favor with you unless you go with us? I and your people will be distinguished by this from all the other people on the face of the earth. That's the uniqueness of God's people is that God's presence goes with them. The Lord answered Moses, I will do this very thing you've asked for you have found favor with me and I know you by name. Then Moses said, please let me see your glory. Well, there's a great prayer. He said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim the name the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he added, you cannot see my face, for humans cannot see me and live. Now, remember, he just said in verse 11, that Moses spoke with God face to face, but here he says, you cannot see my face. So we're speaking in some form of analogy, aren't we? Okay, but we're, and once again, language to help us grasp the ungraspable. I think that's a word. Okay, where he's trying to show, uh, show me your glory, obviously, no one could see the full glory of God. We'd evaporate if we saw the full glory of God. We don't have the capacity as finite beings to see the full glory of the infinite one. And so he's saying no one could see my face. God is the invisible God, but you can see him in some way, shape, or form by seeing his glory, perhaps just a glimpse of his glory. Uh, Thomas Boston. Let's see, I got there. I think this is it. Thomas Boston, he says, uh, he's an old dead guy. Whoops. If I can find it. He says, the brightness of God's glory cannot be described as a full discovery of it, would quite overpower the faculties of any mortal in this imperfect state. Our bodies can't handle it. 
all right? Now, we, when, we, when we go to heaven, when we die, or when Jesus returns, uh, actually, when Jesus returns, we don't get our new bodies when we go to heaven. When Jesus returns, you know, at the rapture, we get our new bodies, right? Now, those bodies are going to be a little more equipped to handle the glory of God. But even then, we will not be able to see the full glory of God. It says, no one has seen nor can see, because we... We'll always be infinite. You don't get to be little gods, by the way, contrary to the Mormonism. Okay. But, but here we see this. We get to somehow see these glimpses. And when we see a glimpse, just a glimpse of God's glory in an experiential encounter with God, our faith is boosted. So we want more of this, don't we? I want to show you a principle. Look at Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 10 through 14. And I call this a principle because often this passage, or at least one of the verses in this passage, is taken out of context, okay? And quite often applied to everybody in specific detail, And that's really not what it's saying. So we want to see the context, but I do think there's a principle that can be found from this passage. Now look what it says. And that's why I'm starting in verse 10. Jeremiah 29, verse 10. For this is what the Lord says. When 70 years for Babylon are complete, I will attend to you and will confirm my promise concerning you to restore you to this place. Now, context here. Okay, Jeremiah is speaking to a group of the Israelites that have already been exiled to Babylon. And, and Babylon, uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar is going to destroy all of Israel and exile all the people up to Babylon, leaving just a few there. But, uh, but, but even at this point, there's this, this group of exiles up in Babylon. Jeremiah is riding to them, and the Lord tells them, 70 years from now, you're going to come back. Okay, So that's the promise. They only were exiled for 70 years. Cyrus gave the decree. They were able to go back home. Okay, So that's the, that's the context. Now he says, verse 11, for I know the plans I have for you. This is the Lord's declaration. Plans for your well-being, not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. Now, often we'll take that particular verse and say, that's me. It applies to me. Actually, in the context, it applies to Israel, to God's people at that time. Okay? That's what he's saying to them. Sometimes disaster does happen to us. All right? This is not a promise that everything's going to go hunky-dory for your life or anything like that. But there is a principle here, and I, see, I believe we see it as we read on. Okay? He says, you will call to me. And notice, this is plural, you. That's why I like Southern talk. Y'all, they have a plural for you, you know. In the Hebrew and in the Greek, they have a plural for you. We don't in the English, okay. You, you guys, you guys, okay. You guys, okay. Well, anyway, you guys will call to me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Now, there's the principle. God does have a plan for each of us, but he has a plan for us. Think corporately here, not just individually. He has a plan for us, and if we 
seek the Lord with all of our hearts. Together, as we seek him, we will find him. We will see those glimpses of his glory and experience those changes that can take place. We will experience revival. And so we see here this principle. He's calling us. Don't just make God a little portion of your life, that we as his people are to seek him. And Moses did that. And Moses saw those glimpses of his glory. He saw God. Faith sees God, and it makes a difference. So what happens when we see God? Okay, that's why I wanted to finish, you know, start out with the last part of our passages, you know, Uh, Moses persevered as one who sees him who is invisible. So what happens when people see God, now we'll walk through the passage, okay? So, first of all, we see this both at the beginning and the end of the passage, verse 23 and 27, that we are no longer afraid of the world. When we get a glimpse of God's glory, it takes away the fear of the world. Okay, look at how it starts. We see, first of all, that Moses' parents were not afraid. Uh, It says, verse 23, back in Hebrews 11, for by faith Moses, after he was born, was hidden by his parents for three months because they saw that the child was beautiful and they didn't fear the king's edict. Notice here, this is not speaking of Moses right here. This is speaking of Moses' parents. Their faith, when they decided to disobey the king, the king told them, kill all the, the, the male children. And they saw something in Moses and said, we're not going to obey that. And so they put him in a little ark and then he flowed and you know the story, okay? Well, Moses' parents were not afraid. Back to F.F. Bruce. He says, wherein precisely did their faith lie? Probably the statement that Moses was a goodly child, our translation says a beautiful child, means more than he was a beautiful baby, we are perhaps intended to infer that there was something about the appearance of the child which indicated that he was no ordinary child, but one destined under God to accomplish great things for his people. They saw something, and so they chose to disobey. They didn't fear the king's edict. In fact, they disobeyed. Now, the Bible tells us we're supposed to obey our government. Romans 13, 1 and 2 says obey your government. But here's the principle. We obey unless obedience would be disobedience to God. And killing their son would have been disobedience to God. Okay, right? <laughs> All right? Uh, Acts chapter 4, 18 through 20 gives an example of that. Uh, John and Peter were arrested, and the officials told them, uh, don't speak in the name of Jesus anymore. And their response was, you decide whether we should obey you rather than God, but we're just going to keep on obeying God. Okay, and so, so we obey our government unless obedience would be disobedience to God. But Moses' parents, they weren't afraid. But also Moses wasn't afraid. So we skip to the end here. We see in verse 27, by faith Moses left Egypt behind not being afraid of the king's anger for Moses persevered as one who sees him who is invisible. So he wasn't afraid of the king's anger either. Moses didn't fear. Fear 
is one of Satan's most effective weapons. It keeps us impotent as far as the things of God are concerned. We're afraid of losing our job, our reputation, our popularity. We're afraid of criticism, even from people we don't like, which doesn't make sense. (laughs) But 1 John 4.18 says, perfect love drives out fear. That perfect love that comes from those experiential encounters of God where we see glimpses of his glory, that drives out fear. Perfect love drives out fear. Partial love holds on to some fear. See how that works? And no love has every reason to fear. But the more you come into contact with God, the more you love him, and the more the fear goes away. So seek God with all of your heart. Faith sees God. So first result, we're no longer afraid of the world. Second result, we are no longer creatures of the moment. Look at verses 24 and 25. He says, By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter and chose to suffer with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasure of sin. A principle here that I think we can apply as Christians that we see in Moses' life is that to become a Christian is a decisive break from the world. F.F. Uh, F. Bruce explains it concerning Moses. He says he could not identify himself both with the Israelites and with the Egyptians. He had to choose one or the other, to choose the side of a slave nation with all the contempt and privation which that entailed in preference to the very real advantages and prospects which were his as the son of Pharaoh's daughter must have seemed an act of folly by all worldly standards. But he recognized to become a part of the people of God is a decisive break from the world. A passage of Scripture that's becoming one of my favorite passages of Scripture, at least for now. Uh, I love the whole Bible, by the way. So it's like, you know, oh, okay, that one's my favorite today. But look at Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. In Colossians 1, Paul says... Speaking of Christ, he has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So when we're born again, when we receive forgiveness of sins, when we uh, become a Christian, it says that God rescues us from the domain of darkness and transfers us into the kingdom of the Son He loves. So we are taken from the kingdom of darkness and put in the kingdom of light, the kingdom of His Son. Okay, So we are radically decisively breaking from the kingdom of darkness and put into the kingdom of God, the kingdom of his son. And so we see this decisive 
break. That's why in Acts 2, 37 and 38, when Peter preached the gospel and a bunch of people, they asked him in verse 37, they said, what should we do? They were stunned by the truth of the gospel. And they said, what should we do? And he said, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so notice, and that's why I love baptism, because it really portrays this decisive break from the world. When you place your faith in Jesus Christ and repent of your sins, you're born again, you become a new creature, you're changed, uh, and then your baptism is that outward expression of that faith, where you literally, according to Romans 6, it says you're buried in baptism. You're dying. It portrays a death to the old way of life. And so it's decisive. I've died from the old way of life and I rise again in newness of life to live for Jesus, just like we were singing in the songs. (laughs) Yeah. All right. So we see this decisive break from the world. And uh, F.F. Bruce talks about that too. He says, Rather than enjoy the transient pleasures of sin, that's how our passage uh, concluded there, the privileges and advantages which are attached to high rank and political power are not sinful in themselves. They can indeed be used very effectively to promote the well-being of others and to help the underprivileged. But Moses... He might have argued to himself that he could do much more for the Israelites by remaining in Pharaoh's court and using his influence there on their behalf than by renouncing his Egyptian citizenship and becoming a member of a depressed group with no political rights. But for Moses to do this when once he had seen the path of duty clear before him would have been sin. The crowning sin of apostasy against which the recipients of this letter, the book of Hebrews, requires so insistently to be warned. We turn from the old way and we turn to the kingdom of God, to God's way. And that's what we're seeing here. And uh, so to become a Christian is a decisive break from the world and lasting future blessing is better than transient pleasure now. Notice he says... And he chose to suffer with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasure of sin. Lasting future pleasure is better than transient pleasure now. I want you to turn to Psalm 73. This is a great passage. It's actually a philosophical passage if you're into philosophy. And because he's discussing this whole question, why does it seem like the wicked prosper? And that was a question that... uh, that people struggled with back in the Old Testament days. It's a question people struggle with up to this time. And in Psalm 73, he answers that question. Now, he starts out with the dilemma. In verses 1 through 3, he says, God is indeed good to Israel, to the pure in heart. So he starts out with this declaration. But as for me, my feet almost slipped. My steps nearly went astray, for I envied the arrogant. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And he goes on throughout the passage describing this struggle that he was having. And look at verse 16. When I tried to understand all this, it seemed hopeless until 
You should underline that. Until I entered God's sanctuary, then I understood their destiny. When he came into the presence of God, when he saw a glimpse of God's glory, when that took place, he saw things from an eternal perspective instead of the transient now. That judgment will come and it was satisfying to his philosophical soul. He goes on, if you skip down to verse 25, this is what he could say after having this kind of experience. He says, who do I have in heaven but you? And I desire nothing on earth but you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. So how does this apply to Moses? From a worldly perspective, Moses was sacrificing everything for nothing. But from God's perspective, he was sacrificing nothing for everything. We belong to the I want it now generation, right? Okay. Even Christians complain like the psalmist in Psalm 73. Why are the wicked getting blessed and we're not? But only when the psalmist went into the temple and met God did he finally understand we are not creatures of the moment. We sometimes are like the two-year-old who throws his temper tantrum when they don't get to eat candy all the time. You had that, parents? But when you meet God, when you see his glory, nothing else matters. Faith sees God. And when we have those glimpses of his glory, first of all, We're no longer afraid of the world. Second, we're no longer creatures of the moment. And finally, we see the true beauty and value of God. Look at verse 26, Hebrews 11. For he considered reproach for the sake of Christ to be greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt since he was looking ahead to the reward. Looking ahead, not the now. The treasures of God far outweigh the treasures of Egypt. We see the true beauty and value of God and his plan. Uh, The temporary suffering is worth it. And that's how he describes this, isn't it? He says he considered reproach for the sake of Christ. Now you're thinking, when did Moses see Jesus? We already talked about that, didn't we? But, but he also prophesied about the Messiah to come. He knew it was coming. He's looking into the future. He knows God's grand plan, and that was enough to endure any kind of reproach that he might experience. The temporary suffering is worth it. F.F. Uh, F. Bruce, one last quote from him. He says, Moses weighed the issues of time in the balances of eternity. His eyes were fixed upon the coming day of recompense. The kingdom of God is worth it. There's a great two parables that Jesus taught in Matthew 13. Look at that, Matthew 13. Jesus taught these parables on the kingdom of God. And in verses 44 through 46... He says, the kingdom of heaven is like 
treasure buried in a field that a man found and reburied. Then in his joy, he goes and sells everything he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. And when he found one priceless pearl, he went and sold everything he had and bought it. When you recognize that God's plan, the kingdom of God, which includes the king. So Jesus really is that pearl of great price, isn't he? When you recognize that, everything else is worth it. I want to say this. I have lived in both worlds. And I am here to tell you that God's beauty and value and his plan blow away anything that the world has to offer. Faith sees God. Do you have faith? Do you want to see God? Are you open to the change that comes when we as God's people experience revival and see God? Let's pray.